Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and open up to the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we're going to look at what is arguably the most familiar verses of this entire epistle. And I say that because you hear them quoted in almost every church every time the Lord's Supper is observed. And oftentimes, that's the only time you hear them quoted. Um, it's, it's interesting, but many of us have probably heard these verses quoted maybe a hundred times in church, maybe more, maybe less, uh, but perhaps we've never heard a full sermon on these verses. So I want to preach a message this morning just on the basics of the Lord's Supper, the basics of the Lord's Supper. Now, we're going to commemorate the Lord's Supper on the fourth Sunday, which will be next Lord's Day, as we typically do. Uh, But as we've been going verse by verse through 1 Corinthians, we've taken a few weeks to look at uh, the section in chapter 11 where Paul deals explicitly with the Lord's Supper. So 1 Corinthians 11, and let me begin reading to you this morning at verse 23. Verse 23. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. These are the words of God. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. The Lord's Supper is fundamental to the identity of a New Testament church. It is the ordinance given by Christ to his church to be observed faithfully, regularly, and continually until he comes again. Uh, Baptism is a one-time ordinance, uh, though there are those who would accuse us of re-baptizing. We contend that, no, we only baptize those who've never been baptized before. Uh, And it's a one-time ordinance. You observe it at the beginning of your Christian walk, ideally. Uh, But the Lord's Supper is not a one-time ordinance, but there's a command to partake of it regularly and often, and it serves as a binding ordinance that constitutes a new covenant assembly. The Lord's Supper is unique in that it is a meal that only the church has a right to administer. Christ did not give the Lord's Supper to individual Christians. He did not give the Lord's Supper to families. He did not give the Lord's Supper to parachurch organizations. He did not give the Lord's Supper to seminaries. He did not give the Lord's Supper to the civil magistrate. He gave it to the church. And a church that does not observe the supper cannot properly be called a church. Any more than a church could be called a church that doesn't practice baptism, practice church discipline, or doesn't preach the gospel. However, as we've noted before, the importance of the church ordinances in general, and the Lord's Supper in particular, have been severely neglected by many in contemporary evangelicalism. It has been remarked, and I find this critique to be accurate, 
that Baptists are often better at telling you what the Lord's Supper isn't than they are at telling you what the Lord's Supper is. You'll hear sermons preached about how it isn't a sacrament. We don't do it like the Catholics do. It isn't salvific. It isn't a means of grace. Well, some of that I agree with. Some of that I certainly don't agree with. But the point is this. We often spend so much of our time when it comes to the ordinances, and especially the Lord's Supper, telling everyone what it's not. Because we don't want to be lumped in with a a Roman Catholic view or whatever the case may be, that we struggle to understand and realize what the Supper is and the significance that it has for us as Christians and church members in the New Covenant. Well, why is this? Why the neglect of the Lord's Supper and its importance? Let me just suggest two reasons as sort of an introductory thought here. Number one, we've lost the teaching of how God administers grace to His people. We no longer view the worship of the church as the means through which God delivers to us sanctifying grace. We have rightly rejected the sacerdotal views of Rome. That simply just means they have this view of the, what they call the sacraments, that they somehow infuse righteousness or that they, they, they grant saving grace apart from faith. We've rightly rejected that. But I fear that there has been an overcorrection, so to speak, that denies the progressive dispensation of God's grace throughout the Christian life. As I've said before, God did not zap you from heaven at your conversion with all of the grace that you would ever need throughout the Christian life. No, but He gives grace. He gives more grace continually. And He gives grace ordinarily through means. Prayer, preaching, the Word of God, and yes... The Lord's Supper is one of those ordinary means of grace. So that's number one. Number two, I believe that the neglect of the Lord's Supper comes from a woeful impact of the church by the entertainment culture of our day. Think about what we do when we celebrate the Supper. Of all the things we do corporately, it is the most quiet and it is the most reverent thing that we do in the worship of the church, as well it should be. The Lord's Supper is not a time for excitement. It's not a time for a jovial, light-hearted spirit. It's time for serious and sober self-reflection, remembrance of Christ, and confession of sin. In terms of entertainment value, the Lord's Supper is incredibly boring. Now notice I said in terms of entertainment value. Because if you really understand what we're doing when we come to partake of the supper, it's far from boring. But in terms of entertainment value as defined by our culture, it's incredibly boring. So churches have sought to minimize it in their liturgy and they they really do this all throughout. For some churches, you're going to be exposed to noise from the moment you walk in to the moment you walk out. There's no dead air. We've got music playing in the vestibule, We've got music playing before the service. We've got a big countdown on the screen, a drum roll before the preacher comes up. And so when it comes to the Lord's Supper, we want to minimize it. We want to take it as infrequently as possible because it's so uncomfortable. And then when we do take it, we want to make it very quick. 
And it's a 10-minute addition to the end of our service so we can say we did it, but we don't want to spend a half an hour contemplating and considering in prayer and in self-reflection before God what we're doing when we come to dine at His sacred table. So here's what I want to do in this message. I don't want to add another overcorrection to the overcorrections. I simply want to present you with a very basic and straightforward overview of the Lord's Supper as we find it in Scripture. And I know that this is a very familiar text. Many of you can quote this text. And I know that you've no doubt heard it and read it many, many times. My goal is not to present you with a new teaching that you've never heard. I I doubt very seriously that I will say anything new this morning. But what I want to do is to cause you to stop and consider some very fundamental teachings that are too easily taken for granted and skipped over. It is healthy in the life of a church to periodically review the basics. In fact, that's exactly what Paul's doing here in 1 Corinthians 11. This is not the first time that he's given this teaching to the church. He gave it to them the first time when he was there in person in Corinth and he planted the church. So what he's doing here is precisely a review. He's teaching an old lesson. And so I would beseech you not to just check out because this portion of Scripture is familiar. I want us to review the basics of the Lord's Supper, but I want us to do that in the context in which Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 11. And in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is not writing about the Baptist view of the Supper versus the Catholic view of the Supper versus the Lutheran view of the Supper. It's not what he's doing, 1 Corinthians 11. As much as uh, my, my theological interests would love me to take you to this text and, and give you that lesson. That's not what Paul's doing. Paul was not even in the immediate context seeking to prove that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. He does this in chapter 10. And if you'd like a message uh, on the different views of the Supper from church history and a defense of the Supper as a means of grace, you can go on our sermon audio and you can listen to the sermons that were preached from chapter 10 where we looked at those things explicitly. But what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 11 is he's correcting an abuse of the Lord's Supper by the Corinthian church. And Paul's way of correcting the abuse is very simple, but very profound in that he just goes back to square one. Uh, How many issues and how many problems do we have in our own Christian life and in our own theology that would be solved if we would just go back to square one? See, the Corinthians were using this ordinance that was designed to promote the unity of the church as an occasion to further divisions in the church. Instead of recognizing God has given us this ordinance to meet together, to to come together, to unite as a body, they were dividing over it. The Corinthians were very good at that. So Paul reviews the teachings of the basics of the Lord's Supper to recover and revive the unity of the body. And if we're going to preach the text in in context, then that has to be our goal as well, that this sermon would be one that would promote the unity of the church on this issue of the Lord's Supper. Well, you say, how does a 101 lesson on the Lord's Supper have anything to do with church unity? Well, because the foundation of our unity as a church is our mutual love and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord's Supper is a time when God calls us 
more than any other time to take our eyes off of everything else and to fixate them on Christ. Amen. And so if we're rightly using the supper, we're going to be rightly uniting with one another. So as we go through these basics, I want you to see how Christ is preeminent in every aspect of this ordinance. He is at the forefront of everything we do when we come together to celebrate the supper. But more than that, I want you to see, I want you to see, yes, uh, how we, we observe ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, the proper way of baptism, the proper way of the supper, but more than that, I want you to see Christ as he is, high and lifted up and exalted in everything that we do. And I want you to see the gospel as foundational to who we are as a church. So let me now give you the basics of the Lord's Supper through the lens of Christ and his gospel. And there's six things in this text that I'm going to point out to you. The first three are are indicatives in this text. They are things uh, that Paul simply states, as a matter of fact, concerning the supper. But the last three things I'm going to point out to you are the therefores, or the so what's. They are a mix of implications and imperatives that are based on the elements of the Lord's Supper. And I trust you'll understand what I mean as we make our way through this text. So let me begin. Number one, I want you to see in verse 23, the conveyance of instruction. The conveyance of instruction. Paul begins and he says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. This is, again, a reference to apostolic tradition. You remember the the sermon there from verse 2, where Paul talks about keeping the traditions, and we, we made clear that Paul does not have in mind just mere social customs. But when he talks about traditions, he is talking about authoritative teachings given by Christ to his church through the apostles. Amen. What Paul received was not the opinions of men or the suggestions of the church or the results of some Barnapole. Paul didn't send out a survey to the 25 most prominent churches in the Greco-Roman world and say, how do you think we should take the supper? And then they wrote their response and they mailed it back to Paul and then Paul produced this report and put it out at the convention meeting and says, here's how we need to be doing the supper because this is what the churches say. That's not what Paul does here. No, he delivers instruction exactly as he received it from the Lord. This is the teaching that he received immediately from Jesus Christ. He says in Galatians 1 and verse 12, speaking of his time of preparation, speaking about the gospel, but also he applies that same language here. He says, For I received it, uh, neither I received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. This underscores the importance that the Lord attributes to this ordinance. To those who think that the supper is of little significance and that it really doesn't matter how we observe it, let me just remind you that the Lord himself placed such a high premium on the supper that he made sure to include it in the curriculum that he used for three years in the Arabian desert as he prepared Paul to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Therefore, what Paul learned in that Arabian desert, he delivers to the church, and what he delivers to the church is simply what Christ first delivered to him. 
See, everything we learn about God or learn about theology or learn about the church, we receive it from the Lord, but we receive it immediately. That means through means, through reading, through preaching. Uh, But the apostles, they received their teachings immediately from Christ Himself, direct revelation. And that's what Paul received in the Arabian deserts, why he's qualified to be an apostle. Whenever we're evaluating the weight of a New Testament doctrine and considering its importance, there's three things we'd like to see. This is a really good hermeneutical nugget if you want to jot this down. There's three things we'd like to see in order to have a complete and robust formulation of this teaching. Number one, we want to see it taught by Christ in the Gospels during His earthly ministry. Number two, we want to see it practiced and demonstrated by the church in the book of Acts. And number three, we want to see it clarified and expounded upon by the apostles in their letters. Now, if there's a doctrine that is missing one of those components, uh, that does not mean that we shouldn't follow it. That does not mean, because uh, how many times does God have to say something for it to be authoritative? One time is plenty. Uh, But it does mean that when we see all those three components, we better be careful before we dismiss it as something where we can just agree to disagree. And we see all three of these requirements overwhelmingly met when it comes to the Lord's Supper. Instituted personally by Christ Himself. Demonstrated by the church all throughout the book of Acts. And clarified in the epistles. When we consider the prevalence of this teaching and the fact that Paul had given this lesson to them multiple times, we must realize that if we sin in abusing and neglecting the supper at a very basic level, it is willful disobedience, not excusable ignorance. And the same is true for us. It's true for the Corinthians. It's true for us. The Lord has commissioned His apostles to write these things in the Scriptures. And all throughout church history, He has commissioned ministers to expound upon these Scriptures. And while I confess and admit that there are difficult aspects to the nuances of the Lord's Supper and all of its particulars, we simply do not have any excuse to be woefully negligent in our celebrating of the Supper. We need to... Know what the Bible says about it and obey it. So this is the conveyance of instruction, how it got to Paul, how it got to the church, how it got to us. Well, let's review these basics. And secondly, I want you to see, beginning in verse 23, at the end of the verse, the crushed bread. The crushed bread. Notice first the context in which this element of bread is instituted in the supper. The Bible says that the Lord... In the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. This is the night before Jesus was crucified. The institution of the Lord's Supper was one of the last things he did in his earthly ministry. He is in the upper room with his disciples. He is observing the feast of Passover. And he is sharing the last few precious moments that he had with them before he was taken, arrested by night, condemned as a criminal and sentenced to die by crucifixion. Now there's two 
interesting aspects of interpretation that come from this phrase in the same night in which he was betrayed. This is not an expendable detail. And I want to make you aware of two important things that this, this phrase should bring to your mind. The first is that the tense of this phrase could be translated as while he was being betrayed. It's in an active mood. In the same night, while he was being betrayed, he took bread. Remember that Judas had already been dismissed from the upper room. He was not present when Christ institutes the supper. And does it not send chills down your spine to think that while Christ is sitting with his disciples and establishing the Lord's Supper and comforting his disciples as he tells them of the cruel death which he is about to die, at the very same time, Judas Iscariot has left the upper room He's gone to stand before the chief priests where he is orchestrating a deal to make money selling Jesus to die. While this is going on, Jesus is instituting the supper. And yet Jesus knew exactly what was going on. The disciples didn't, but he did. If you knew that right now, Somewhere outside of the four walls of this church building, there was someone whom you once considered a friend scheming with a group of assassins to take your life for their own profit. I doubt very seriously that you would have the peace and tranquility to sit in church and enjoy worship. You'd be out there trying to find that guy, trying to foil his plan to take your life. But not Jesus. He didn't try to foil this plan because he knew that this plan was the plan of his father. He didn't go to the cross because Judas betrayed him. He didn't go to the cross because the Roman soldiers arrested him and condemned him to die. He didn't go to the cross because the Jews shouted, crucify him, crucify him. He went to the cross to fulfill the will of the Father and accomplish the redemption of His people. Amen. That's why He went to Calvary. Amen. So Christian, rest assured, when the world and the devil are plotting together to scheme a plan to destroy Christ and to destroy His church, be encouraged to know that it is in that very moment when Christ is most near. When Christ is ministering to His church, when Christ is loving them, when Christ is giving them everything they need to overcome Satan and to overcome this world. Because He said in Matthew 16, Upon this rock I will build My church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we rest in that promise. The second thing I want you to see from this phrase, in the night in which he was betrayed, is this. The word translated as betrayed could also be accurately translated as delivered. I don't know of any English Bible that translates it that way, but if you look the word up in the Greek, you find that it was more commonly translated as delivered than it was as betrayed. So then it would read, the same night in which he was delivered. Well, what's the significance of that? The significance of that 
is that it shifts the focus away from the sin of Judas Iscariot and it places it upon the holy and righteous plan of God. Judas betrayed Christ, but it was the Father who delivered up His only begotten Son to bear the sins of His people. Romans 8.32 tells us, He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? What we see here, brothers and sisters, is that while Satan is doing his worst, God is doing his best. It is on the precipice of having the sins of his people imputed to him and becoming accursed and having the wrath of Almighty God poured out upon him that Christ institutes the supper. Think about Jesus the man. The weight the gravitas, the pressure that he would have been under this night in the upper room. And yet, you don't see him pacing back and forth. You don't see him fretting. You don't see him encumbered with worry. You see him confidently ministering to his church and celebrating the supper. Imagine... Satan and the excitement, the, the, the anticipation of Satan and his demons as they entered into Judas. And Satan says to himself and to his legion, Ha! Ah, we finally got him. We are going to kill Jesus Christ. We're going to put an end to this preacher from Galilee. But what Satan failed to realize is that the death of Jesus was not the demise of Christ. It was the demise of Satan himself. Because his death destroyed the powers of hell. And in his death he triumphed over Satan and he crushed the head of the serpent. This is what Christ is declaring to his disciples when he took bread and says to them, Take, eat, this is my body broken for you. Jesus prays a blessing on the element and he utters the words of institution and he offers up bread to his disciples. This would have no doubt been the unleavened bread of the Passover meal. The bread that commemorated Israel's deliverance from Egypt. And it is now being used to commemorate a far more glorious commemoration of deliverance. Again, there's Two things that I want you to see from what Christ says here when he says, this is my body broken for you. But first, let me quickly tell you what he's not saying. I've already told you that Paul's goal here is not to present an exhaustive rebuttal to the Roman Catholic perversion of the supper, and neither is that my goal. But I must briefly tell you that when Christ serves the bread and he says, this is my body, no one in that upper room would have taken those words literally. None of the disciples would have understood Jesus' words to mean that he was serving them his actual physical body and his literal blood. Such an interpretation of these words is just absurd and preposterous for a number of reasons. Charles Hodge has a whole litany of reasons in his commentary on 1 Corinthians 11. But perhaps the greatest reason is that his physical body was sitting with them in the upper room. 
Take, eat, this is my body? What do you mean, Jesus? We, we see your body right there. No, they knew what he meant. The natural and plain interpretation of these words is that the bread and the wine symbolize the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ as our dying Savior. Amen. And what the bread is for the body, Jesus is for the soul. Just as bread nourishes you physically and gives you what you need to grow, so too do the benefits of Christ's death nourish us spiritually and grow us in the faith of Christ our Lord. So notice here two things about this body that is broken for you. First, the bread which symbolized the body of Christ was broken to symbolize the agonies under which he suffered in order to redeem his people. Every time we observe the Lord's Supper, you know that we observe it with one loaf. And every time we observe the Supper, I hold that loaf up before you all and I break it. When we break the bread, we are vividly reminded that Christ was broken for us. He was beaten by Roman soldiers. He had his clothes stripped off of him in utter disgrace. He was whipped with a cat of nine tails until his back would have just been pouring with blood. He was smitten, slapped in the face, and spat on. A crown of thorns was forced into his brow. He he was not able to see because of the blood that would have covered his eyes. His beard was pulled out of his chin. His beatings were so severe that his flesh, his, his muscle, his bones, possibly even his internal organs were exposed. As the cat of nine tails would have, would have been manipulated by the Romans. They, they used this device. Not only was it leather, but they would take shards of broken glass and metal and they would affix it to the end of those Tails, so that when the leather was whipped across the back, the the shards of glass and shrapnel would have dug into the flesh and gashed big, gaping wounds into the back and sides of our Lord Jesus Christ. His beating was so severe that he was unable to carry the cross to Calvary. And had not God preserved him, Naturally, we, we don't even understand why he survived to Golgotha's hill. That's right. And as his cross arrived on that mountainside, large spikes would have been driven through the palms of his hands and through his ankle bones. And he would hang there for six hours. The common way of dying by crucifixion was actually not from the beating itself, but it was through asphyxiation. The one crucified would have been unable to breathe, and in order to breathe, they would have to pull themselves up by the nails that were in their hands and in their feet just to take a breath, and it was excruciating pain every time he would breathe. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 52 and verse 14 that his visage 
was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. He was beaten to a bloody pulp past the point of even being recognized. If you knew Jesus throughout his earthly ministry and you were to walk by on that day and see him on the cross, you would have no idea that it was him. That's, that's what that means. He's naked. He's hanging there. And he's just covered in his own blood and his own bodily fluids for six hours. And the apex of his sufferings, the, the worst of all of the punishment, is not from any of the things I just told you. Amen. But it is that while he was on the cross, he does what he would typically do all throughout his ministry. He calls out to his father with whom he had had unbroken fellowship and eternal communion. But this time it's different. He does not hear the approving voice of his father that says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He hears nothing at all. And so he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the answer, which is not in the text, but which we know to be true, is that because, son, you are bearing the sins of your people. And in this moment, I have nothing but wrath to pour out upon you. The apex of his sufferings is the divine wrath of God poured out upon him on the cross. This is what the supper is all about. Do you see why we make such a big deal about it? Do you see why we don't just treat it like some little pseudo-American Christian trinket? Because it's the emblem of our Savior suffering and dying for us. Amen. Notice secondly that Jesus said that this is His body broken for you. Underscoring the substitutionary nature of His death, He tells His disciples... I'm going to the cross to be crucified in your place. I'm giving myself for you on the cross. We were the ones that should have been beaten. We were the ones that should have been killed. It should have been you on that cross. It should have been me on that cross. Because we were the ones who sinned. We were the ones who broke the law of God. We were the ones who transgressed His commandment. We were the ones who incurred guilt and condemnation. Christ had no sins of His own. On the cross, He was judicially guilty, but personally innocent. He became sin. He did not become a sinner. It was our guilt... And our iniquities and our sins that were laid upon him. And it was because of us that he suffered. When we see a news story about some hero, heroic man or woman that sacrifices themselves to save others, it wells up within us this emotional response. We view them with respect and we view them with adoration. And we should. 
When we hear of a fallen soldier on the battlefield that jumped on a grenade to save his platoon, we say, what a hero. But our reverence for that hero, as we read it in the story, is nothing compared to the love and devotion of those who were saved by that hero's sacrifice. So it is with Christ. Beloved, when you think of Calvary, do you see your Savior dying for you? Do you look to that tree with the eye of faith and say, there He is, my Lord, giving Himself for me? That's what Paul said. Galatians 2, this life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Yeah, Paul Paul says, yes, I know he loves other people too, but right now I'm talking about how he loves me, how he gave himself for me. His death was not a general anonymous offering of himself. He died intimately, specifically, and specially for those whom he loves. When he went to the cross, you were on his mind. As he hung there for six hours, your name was graven upon his heart. See, it is not enough to believe that Jesus died to be saved. Everyone in the Bible Belt believes that Jesus died. You must believe that he died for you. So when you take the bread in the supper, you do so with the faith that Christ your Savior died in your place so that you could be saved from sin, death, hell, and the wrath of God. You're saved because He wasn't. Your life is spared because His wasn't. And God now pours out His love upon you because He poured out His wrath on Jesus then. Amen. Well, thirdly, and I, I need to hurry, I need to make haste as we continue on. I want you to see the cup of the new covenant. Look at verse 25, the cup of the new covenant. After the same manner, he took the cup. That simply means that just as he took the bread and he blessed it and he served it, he takes the cup, he blesses it, and he serves it. And he says this, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. The words for testament and covenant are interchangeable. They're synonymous. Jesus was announcing that his death was the inauguration of the new covenant, and his blood was that which ratified the covenant. Amen. That's right. To get the full weight of this proclamation, you need to put yourself in the place of the disciples. First century Jews. This was not their first Passover with Jesus, right? They'd been with him for three years. This was definitely their second, probably their third. I lean to the view that it's their third Passover with him. And so, two times before, Jesus would have instituted the Passover feast in accordance with the Old Testament Jewish customs. The same way any other rabbi would have done it. And they would have dedicated and commemorated the deliverance of Israel under the Old Covenant. There was not just merely one cup there. There were multiple cups that each focused in on various aspects of Israel's deliverance. But what Jesus does here with the Lord's Supper is radically different. He takes the cup that symbolizes Israel's redemption and he holds it up and he says, this cup is now the new covenant in my blood. What do you mean, Jesus? 
No, no, that, that cup is the cup that symbolizes the sacrificial lamb that was shed, you know, when we painted the blood over the doorpost and God passed over us. That's what this cup represents, Jesus. You, you, maybe you forgot to read that in, in your theology book. And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand. That lamb that you killed in the old covenant was just a type. I'm the substance. I'm the reality. This cup really always symbolized me, but it used to symbolize me through this shadow, but now it symbolizes me for who I am as I'm standing before you and as I will go to die in the fullness of my revealed glory in this earth. My cup. The disciples were familiar with the new covenant. It was prophesied by Jeremiah. It was anticipated all throughout the Old Testament. They'd long awaited this new covenant, and now imagine the joy as they realized what he was saying to them. The new covenant had come. And with the coming of the new covenant comes all the blessings of the new covenant. No more need to sacrifice bulls and goats, which can't take away sin. The law of God will be written upon the hearts of all God's people. No longer will every man say to his neighbor, Know the Lord, for all the members of this new covenant will know him and listen in a saving way. You might know the facts about Jesus Christ because you went to Sunday school when you were eight years old. You walked an aisle and you prayed a prayer and you were baptized. It's not what this blessing means. It says they will all know him. It means they know him in a saving way. They love him. No longer does one become a member of God's covenant through their physical descent. Just because your parents are Christians, just because your parents are baptized, just because your parents go to church doesn't mean you have any part. It is now the spiritual birth. It is the Holy Spirit that regenerates us, births us again, and places us into a gracious covenantal relationship with Jehovah. And it is no longer limited to the physical line of Abraham's seed, but Paul says in Galatians 3, if you are of Christ, then are you Abraham's seed. Amen. Amen. What Jesus is announcing here is that a greater deliverance has come to the people of God. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, every year when Passover was observed, faithful Israelite families would, would get out the bread and they would get out the wine and their children would come up to them. And they would say, Mommy, Daddy, why do we every year celebrate this feast and partake of bread and wine. And a faithful Jew would say to their children, because, because there was a day when our people were enslaved to Pharaoh in Egypt. But God remembered his promises to us, and he brought us out, and he delivered us. And that's why we observe this feast. But now, in the new covenant, you have an even better answer. Christian, when you are partaking of the Lord's Supper and your children come to you and they say, Mommy, Daddy, how come at church you eat bread and you drink wine? You can say to your children, because son, because daughter, there was a time in which your dad was a slave to his sin and in the bondage of his iniquities. But God remembered his gracious decree and in the fullness of time, he sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die for me on the cross and I eat this bread and I drink this wine to commemorate that he has saved me and if you place your faith in him, he'll save you too. Amen. Amen. 
in the Lord's Supper, we have a greater feast than the Passover of the Old Covenant. No longer a shadow but a substance. No longer a type but a reality. I've given you three indicatives. Let me show you three implications, three imperatives very quickly. Number four, I want you to see in this text, all throughout, there is the command to remember. The command to remember. It it is repeated in verses 24 and in verse 25. Jesus says about both the bread and the wine, which by the way, let me say this, no priest, no pastor has any right to withhold one of the elements from his congregation. Some of you grew up in a Roman Catholic church where you were told you could partake of the bread but could not partake of the wine. Let me just say, Jesus says about both of the elements to his people, this do in remembrance of me. I want you to notice that this is indeed a command. Jesus commands his people to do this. To eat the bread and to drink the cup. He didn't say, this is something you may do if you get around to it. He says this is something you must do, and you must do it often. You must make the faithful observance of the Lord's Supper a priority in your Christian life. But listen very carefully. When the Lord commands us to do something, we must not only do what He commands, we must do it in the way in which He commands. What do I mean? Well, I mean that the command to partake of the Lord's Supper presupposes obedience to the command of the prerequisites of the Lord's Supper. To obey this command of regularly partaking of the Lord's Supper, there's three things you must first obey. Number one, you must place a saving, repentant faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't have time to get on this rabbit hole, but let me just say this to you. I plead and I beg with sinners to come to Christ, but He commands you to come to Him. You must come to Him. You must repent of your sins. You must believe in Him. You must not go on living unto yourself. Secondly, you must receive scriptural baptism. You must. And thirdly, you must unite yourself to a true New Testament church. Why do I say that these are the three prerequisites? Well, because they're clearly taught for us. And you will not find a single example in the entire New Testament of someone properly observing the Lord's Supper that does not meet these three prerequisites. Amen. You just won't find it. Amen. Uh, but there are those who will say, well, uh, see here it says we need to do this in remembrance, so why won't you let me come to the table? Well, because you, you're not obeying the prerequisites. You refuse scriptural baptism. You refuse church membership, whatever the case may be. So yes, we want you to obey the command, but we want you to obey it in the way that Christ tells us to obey it. To use this text to argue for an observance of the supper that does away with any one of these prerequisites is to misuse this text. But I want you also to see the purpose of this command. Jesus tells us to observe the supper in remembrance of Him. And it is here that those who hold to a purely memorialist view of the supper and deny that it is indeed a means of grace will say, Aha! See there? Jesus just says to do it in remembrance of Him. It's just a remembrance. And to that I say, How can a true believer in Christ, filled with the Spirit of God, 
honestly and soberly remember and reflect and meditate upon the dying love of Christ his Savior and not be overwhelmed by the reception of God's grace to him. Amen. Let's go. It is not the memorial aspect of the supper that precludes it from being a means of grace. Listen very carefully. It is precisely the memorial aspect of the supper that makes it a means of grace. If this building were bigger, I think I could do a lap. As we fixate our mind and heart and will upon the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the benefits of His death afresh and anew, we're drawn closer to God through Christ and closer to one another through the mutual faith in our Redeemer. Like all of the Lord's commandments, they're not burdensome. I'm glad He commands us to do this. This is what Paul wanted the Corinthians to see, and it's what we must see. You need the Lord's Supper. You need it. And if you think you can live a victorious Christian life with the joy of your salvation, apart from the ordinary means of grace, you think far too highly of yourself. You must obey this command, and you must regularly partake of the Lord's Supper with the local church that God has set you in. That's what he tells them here. Because when you don't do that, when you go and do your own thing and you neglect the Lord's Supper, you are intentionally forgetting Christ. Intentionally forgetting Him. We've had this discussion before about it's not what you intend to do, it's what you actually do. And so if someone says, well, I can remember Him out on the bass boat. Well, that's fine and dandy, but that's not how He told you to remember Him. He said, remember me by observing the Supper. And I'm thankful. I'm thankful that, and I know your heart because you... you you say this to me, and it, you know, it, it encourages me as your pastor to hear you say things like, hey, I can't wait for next Sunday. We get to take the Lord's Supper next Sunday. Mm-hmm. And I'm thankful that at this church, God has blessed us with a congregation that loves this ordinance. We don't have to worry about those who just are casual or nonchalant with it. I'm very, very grateful for that. So this is not directed at anyone, but it's a reminder that we need to hear. When you come to his house and dine at his table and partake of his supper, you are entering into sweet communion with him and he with you. So there is a command to remember. Fifthly, there's the call to proclaim. The call to proclaim. Look at verse 26. Time has already escaped me. But notice, he says, for as often as you do this, and... and Does Paul give us any authoritative command on the frequency of which we are to take the supper? No, he simply does not. It is appropriate to take it weekly. It is appropriately to take it monthly. But here's what he says. As often as you do it, not as infrequently as you do it. I think every congregation has the liberty before God to discern what is most healthy and what is best for their assembly to take it with that level of frequency. As often as you... Take it. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till He come. You proclaim His death. The elements of the Lord's Supper are visible words. Some of you in this room will never preach a sermon. Most of you in this room will never preach a sermon. But every time you partake of the supper, you are proclaiming that the Lamb of God has died and He's taken away the sins of the world. And that includes your sins. Amen. Every time. 
And you're also proclaiming your faith in that death. You are receiving the bread and you are receiving the wine and you are saying, I trust the eternal state of my soul on Christ alone who died for me. And lastly, sixthly, at the end of verse 26, we see the coming anticipated. You see it? We proclaim His death till He come. Three promises here in this little phrase, till He come. Number one, there's a promise of the perpetuity of the church. As long as Christ tarries, He will have an assembly. Our confession, our first London Baptist confession, second London Baptist confession says that Christ has and always will have a visible kingdom on this earth unto Himself. Amen. He will have a church that keeps the ordinances that He delivered to them. Amen. Secondly, there's a promise of the second coming. Notice it doesn't say if he comes. When he comes. He will come again. And every time we come to the Lord's table, we are one Lord's day. We are one ordinance. We are one Lord's supper away and closer to that return. And thirdly, there's a promise of the consummation of redemption and the marriage supper of the Lamb. As much as I love the ordinances, there's going to come a day in which there will never again be a baptism. Uh, There's going to come a day in which we will never partake of the Lord's Supper the way we do now, ever again. We know this because Jesus, when He instituted the Supper in Matthew 26, verse 29, He says, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. (laughs) There's coming a day when even this beautiful observance of the Lord's Supper will come to an end. But then we will ascend to a feast which Christ again will once be present in body in all of His glory we will sit down with Him. And all of the saints from all of the ages and we will feast with our bridegroom. And oh, the worship that will ensue on that day. May I close with the words of the Revelation chapter 19 verses 6 through 8. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude as the voice of many waters as the voice of of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia! For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and His wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. There's coming a day, brothers and sisters. Our bridegroom, He's waiting for us. And He's going to present us to Himself and we will be arrayed in fine linen. And I ask you as I close, are you making yourself ready? You say, how do I do that? You make yourself ready for that feast. One of the ways you make yourself ready is by being faithful to this feast. Amen. Being faithful to this supper. Consider it a glorious appetizer. Every time you come together to partake of the Lord's Supper, you're looking back at what He's done, but oh, you're looking forward to what He will do Amen. on that day. So we thank God for the promise that Christ will one day return 
and He'll complete the application of our redemption. But we thank God also that in this intermediate age, He's given to us this clear and vivid ordinance of the Lord's Supper to commemorate what He has done and to anticipate what He will yet do. Let us pray together. Father, we thank You in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the liberty to stand and preach the gospel and to preach it through the lens of the ordinances of the church. Father, we thank You for the Lord's Supper. We pray that You're preparing our hearts to receive the Supper when we do so next Lord's Day. May You etch these truths into the fabric of our our doctrinal and practical identity. May we take them home with us and meditate upon them. May You build us up in the most holy faith. Father, we love You. We praise You. We glorify You. Holy and most blessed in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.